This is an ABC podcast. Greetings, cheese and peas. Welcome to another Late Night Live coming to you from Gadigal Country on RN Summer. I bring you two fascinating guests tonight who've had some surprising stories to tell about the communities they've been researching. Later, we're going to hear from journalist and author El Hardy, who has spent a lot of time in Pentecostal churches across the globe trying to work out the secret to their extraordinary success in recruiting new members. And she also looks back in history at how some of the earliest Pentecostal churches got started. But first, we're going to look at a bizarre story that sits at the nexus of both America's obsession with physical beauty and their high rates of incarceration. From the 1920s to the 1990s, around half a million prisoners underwent plastic surgery in America's prisons. Half a million. They had plastic surgery to improve their appearance in the belief that in doing so, it would improve their chances of rehabilitation from a life of crime. Or as it was said in one newspaper of the time, handsome does as handsome is, becomes a newer guide, and criminals to be reformed must first be beautified. Now, this practice, of course, raises many ethical questions. Freelance journalist and now author Zara Stone tells the story of how the practice of plastic surgery for prisoners started, whether it actually worked, and why it is no longer practised. Her book is called Killer Looks, the Forgotten History of Plastic Surgery in Prisons, and it's published by Prometheus Books. I spoke to Zara Stone from her home in San Francisco. Welcome to our little wireless program. Hi, thank you for having me. Decades ago, we did a story on what I think is pretty much the birth of plastic surgery during the First World War when, of course, doctors were involved in patching up uh, wounded soldiers. But you say it then went two separate paths. Absolutely. So, you know, at this period of time, plastic surgery was really not very well regarded. Like prior to the world wars, um, surgeons who worked in this field were considered kind of disreputable. Um, In America, they weren't allowed access to the American Medical Association. And the real idea was that if you were a doctor, you shouldn't be concerned about people's vanity. You should really be focused more on their health. And so as this field developed, again, you know, with the world wars and people coming back with all these injuries, plastic surgeons really started to build up their profile. And at one segment of them, they decided to kind of go, you know, the professional route. So they would write papers and they would do research studies and they really tried to impart a certain level of gravitas to what they were doing. But then we also had this other cohort And they decided they weren't so interested in, you know, kind of professional approval where they really thought they would make their money was with public approval. So they took really like more of a showmanship approach to plastic surgery. And some of that does overlap with a prison surgery in a really interesting way. 
which we shall explore so shortly. Does the idea that appearance and criminality are connected come from the eugenics movement? Uh, there's definitely some overlap there and with the idea that, you know, certain traits can be inherited, such as criminality, and then we have all those, you know, horrible, famous eugenicists who would map the skull and be like, oh, well, if you have a pointed chin, you're more likely to be a thief, or if your eyes are together, you're a rapist, and all this you know, this absolute crock of science, which wasn't science at the time. And some of this certainly in the early days got conflated. And especially because people who were locked up were, you know, generally people of considered other or of foreign origin or who had things that people at the time didn't really agree with. And so in those kind of situations, kind of changing somebody's face, it sort of changed the idea of who they were as a person, kind of under the inherited criminality banner in terms of looks. In the past, we've done programs on how the eugenics movement in the US inspired Hitler back in, uh, back in Germany. So, okay, let's, uh, let's look at the link between success and attractiveness, so-called appearance bias. Yeah, and appearance bias, or I think one of the ways they're calling it now lookism, it's really the idea about discriminating against someone purely based on what they look like. And this goes into all sorts of different fields, but it's really, again, it's ascribing these kinds of moral judgments just based on somebody's face. So for example, you have a scar, facial scar, so you could be like, well, you're more likely to be violent. And just all these um, associations which aren't really true, but which kind of unconsciously bias people against people, again, who kind of are considered other, and have this kind of permeates throughout our entire life. Um, I mean, it will have affected you. I'm sure it's affected me as a woman. Um, just the way we look in terms of how people respond to us, kind of, yeah. As you point out, teachers uh, pay more attention to attractive kids and attractive people are more likely to be given attractive jobs. Yeah, and it's kind of really shocking because I would say most teachers would have be horrified to hear that they're doing this from an early age, but their data is there. Like there is so many studies to back this up. So, you know, teachers, they will put, spend more time with attractive children. Um, if the attractive children are boisterous, they'll be called high-spirited. Mm. Or if they're less attractive, they'll be called troubled. And all the way through school, attractive kids, they will get better grades. Even in university, this happens. So this really kind of, you know, you're giving people this feedback their entire life that if you're considered more attractive, these are just the benefits. And, and you also cite that in courts, attractive people got lesser sentences. It's true. Uh, not so much when it's a jury trial, but with judges, uh, the data is pretty solid on that. Um, they will get you know smaller fines, um, smaller convictions. Um, I think there's a couple of exceptions. If the crime in um, that we're talking about is one where it's considered more like swindling or fraud. So, or somebody is a sex worker. In that case, actually being considered more attractive works against you. And I think there's kind of, you know, the reverse beauty bias at work where they're like, well, you being attractive means you've been more successful as a swindler or a sex worker. 
Okay, enter stage writer, plastic surgeon called Dr. John Crum. Tell me about his work on Alice. So Dr. Crum, um, I think he was originally from Chicago and he moved to New York City in the 1930s. And he epitomizes the kind of surgeon that was disreputable and showman-like and quackish. And so Crum really believed in the idea of what we want to say with air quotes, social medicine, that changing the face could in some way reshape the personality. So in 1932, uh, he put on this really large spectacle at the Hotel Pennsylvania in Manhattan, New York City. So around a thousand people turned up. These were all people who were, you know, attending this beauty shop convention and they filtered in to this really large ballroom. Uh, There were black drapes hanging, there were flowers, there was a string quartet in one corner and it was all very dramatic. And then, you know, then kind of it goes dark and a spotlight beams out and Dr. Crumb, he kind of strides onto the stage in a lab coat and he like makes this big announcement. Tonight, you're going to see something special. You're going to see a personality reform. And he made this incredibly grandiose. And then we meet Alice and Alice, uh, she walks in. She's a short woman. Her eyes are concealed behind a little mask. And as she walks towards him, you can see that, you know, she's kind of in her like late 40s, early 50s. And she just, you know, doesn't have a spring in her step of a 20 year old. And so she sits down in the middle of a stage where we have this big chair and Dr. Crumb, he points to her and he gives everybody her backstory. He's like, this is Alice. She has been in prison for 20 years for killing her husband. And so we have, you know, the audience gasps and there's a little bit of shock going on. And he's like, and now she's out. She's paid her debt to society. And what we really want to do is help her get a job. And Alice, before she went to prison, her career was in beauty. But since she's been released, she has found it impossible to get a job. And then, you know, at this point, he like touches her face and he like moves her cheek. And he's like, these are the lines of aging and crime that are now in her face. And we need to get rid of them for her to be able to succeed. And then over the next, I think, two hours, seven minutes, he gives Alice a facelift. Uh, He gets his scalpel out. He has his ammonia. He injects her with Novocaine. Uh, The orchestra, they play a bunch of, you know, songs which he selected. So the songs are stuff like uh, there's Goodnight Sweetheart. There is uh, Sweet and Lovely. There's How Long Will It Last? You know, like really kind of cliche stuff because this is just the kind of guy he was. He kind of really likes setting us up. I mean, there was a smell of blood in the audience. I think a couple of people fainted and had to be ushered out. And then he kind of turns her back to face everybody. And, you know, she's swollen and she has bandages, but, you know, the lines and the grooves are gone from her face. And he's like, meet Alice. This is the new improved version. And afterwards, um, he's like, now she can go, she can get a job, she can succeed. And we never actually hear about her again which suggests that actually she did manage to go on and, you know, have a new life as she wanted it. Sarah, now introduce us to Dr. Michael Lewin. So Dr. Michael Lewin was a plastic surgeon in New York City, uh, and he was originally from Poland. So he immigrated uh, during the World War, leaving his whole of his family behind because he wasn't able to practice medicine there at the time. 
And actually, he never saw his family again. You know, really sadly, they kind of died in a ghetto. So you have this young plastic surgeon in New York City, and, you know, he doesn't speak the language particularly well. He's not very rich. And he's really seeing the whole time how people react to him. Um, you know, and he's obviously he is in better circumstances than other people. Like he's white, he's male, he's tall, but he he's poor. And he really sees that he's kind of treated as a second class citizen. And this is one of these kind of formative experiences that went on to drive his work as he got older. And again, like Dr. Lewin is one of the people who really helped set up these prison plastic surgery programs, as we have heard of him today. So he gets a letter from Sing Sing Prison. Tell us the story of William Ritchie. Uh, so William Ritchie, uh, I think when he contacted Dr. Lewin, he was 23 years old. And he actually had a history with Dr. Lewin. So uh, Ritchie was born with kind of a cleft palate and had been having a number of surgeries on his face for the last couple of years to kind of try and fix it. You know, back then it was really a a number of kind of steps in order to get the effect he wanted. But he didn't really like having surgery, you know, as teenagers don't, and he skipped a lot of appointments. And then he, you know, from Dr. Lewin's side, he just vanished. But on Ricky's side, uh, he'd been living in New York and he'd had a lot of teasing from all of his friends because of his appearance in high school. You know, he was shunned even when he was working, people would be rude about it. And then on New Year's Eve one year, um, you know, he's partying, he's having a drink, he's just trying to relax. And one of his friends just started, starts making, you know, fun about his face and like making stupid expressions. And Ricky kind of snaps, like he pulls out a gun, he shoots him, and then he gets arrested and gets, you know, shuttled off to Sing Sing. And when he contacts Dr. Lewin, like what he really says is like, I know this was bad, I'm, I'm owning my mistake but I just want to look normal. I don't want to be in a situation where this happens to me again. And Dr. Lewin, you know, he, at this point, you know, he'd never been to a prison. He didn't understand anything about the carceral system, but he really wanted to help Ricky. And so, you know, he headed up to Sing Sing, kind of went through all the different checks and he met Ricky and he saw that he really did want to reform and reshape. And he was like, okay, if a warden lets me, I'm going to come here and I'm going to operate on you. And the warden, um, he was not particularly friendly, but he was like, as long as this doesn't cost me anything, sure, go ahead. And so, you know, over the next two years, um, Lewin would come to Sing Sing pretty regularly and operate on Ricky. And while he was there, he saw everybody around him and he saw, you know, people with, you know, broken noses, facial scars, like many things which I think would be classed under disfigurement. And he realized that this is something where I could see how this could affect their lives. And, you know, these might be drivers like Ricky to help them commit crimes or just help is not the wrong word, but drivers of might be why they have committed crimes. And he really wanted to see if he could help them. And again, the warden was like, yes, that's fine. I just don't want it to cost me anything. And at this point, Dr. Lewin, he'd kind of risen up the surgery ranks he was running a plastic surgery program and so this is where he got his residents involved and they really started heading up to Sing Sing you know maybe two days or two afternoons a week and they would do faceless and eyeless and nose jobs um, pr pretty much anything that you know was wanted and they thought was medically necessary or could be helpful and this just became a very regular occurrence. My guest on 
telling this remarkable story is Zara Stone, and her book is called Killer Looks, The Forgotten History of Plastic Surgery in Prisons, No Longer Forgotten, thanks to Zara. So many hundreds, well, 1,400 prisoners applied to be part of the program, and as you say, the most popular uh, requirements were nose jobs, scar removals, tats also, I guess. Absolutely. And I mean, I think we all have the idea that tattoos connote a certain lifestyle, and especially when they're related to gangs, or I think there were also quite a number of swastikas that were removed and other crude drawings. And, you know, I guess the idea is that by getting rid of these kinds of, you know, stigmatized signs, which, you know, stigmatized for very valid reasons, it again enables people to be able to get more employment. And recidivism is such a huge thing. I, like, I think the numbers then and now is something like 70% of people like reoffend within five years. And anything that can really drop that number is really was really valued, especially at that time when they were kind of going through this wave of kind of social medicine. I'm interested in, uh, in the chin, both uh, the problematic motivational guy, uh, Tony Robbins, and indeed John DeLorean were worried about their weak chins and had chin jobs. It was once again pretty common in prisons because weak chins were accepted as evidence of weakness of character. Uh, yeah, I mean, this kind of ties into, you know, kind of the eugenics philosophy. I think like Cesare Lombroso, uh, he was the guy who he would be, he was an Italian man and he liked to measure people's skulls and kind of decide, you know, what traits correlated to certain, in his mind, atavistic personalities. And so the, the weak chin would be one of them. I think the like the large brow was another. And a lot of these, again, at the time, kind of conflated to sort of like Southern Italian features, um, you know, and there was this really big disregard for people. And so in America, you know, during this period with all kind of the Immigration Act and like not being able to let as many people in, kind of having this like, you know, guidebook to like, oh, he has a weak chin, he has a bad brow. This means he's a bad guy. It was mm. kind of shorthand for racism, really. Well, surgery did reduce recidivism with 30% reoffending compared to the control group which was 56%. What do you how do you interpret that? Was it uh, did the prisoner feel better about themselves or did it actually improve the way in which they were treated? I think it's really a uh, I think it's a mixture of both of these things. Um, the way people respond to you and react to you, um, that really can boost self-esteem. And, you know, if people also are reluctant, say, to hire somebody with a criminal record, um, which makes them even more reluctant to hire somebody who's unattractive and with a criminal record. So one way would be that looking more attractive just smooths things a little bit when people get released and try and reintegrate. And the other thing is on a personal level, uh, feeling better about yourself is a really good thing. And, you know, I think there's the argument, like, does it matter if you're more attractive if, for example, you're on a life sentence? Because in some cases, um, people with life sentences got plastic surgery. 
And I think the argument was generally, yes, like even if you will never be released from prison to get a job, um, if you feel better about yourself, you will be less disruptive, um, less likely to argue with people. And this really just makes it more pleasant for everyone. So both black and white prisoners were offered plastic surgery? Uh, they were. Um, it kind of varied from place to place because, uh, you know, I think by the closure of these programs, they were in around, I think, 44 states and a number of federal prisons. So, um, you know, on the surface, yes, it was open to black and white prisoners. Um, but I think in reality, you know, in some specific places, uh, the white prisoners vastly outnumbered the black ones. Um, I think, for example, I'm trying to remember, I think it might have been in Tennessee, where I think it was like one in 10 of the prisoners who received plastic surgery was black, despite something them being around maybe 60% of the incarcerated population. And I understand were, that women were also included in the uh, plastic surgery project, up to and including breast implants. Uh, yes, so the plastic surgery did include breast implants. Uh, the one that Dr. Lewin was involved with um, he was involved at Sing Sing, which is a men's prison, and he was also involved with the Rikers Island um, jail prison, which is in New York City, um, but also within that whole jail complex, there was the women's house of detention. But more broadly across the states, um, you know, these plastic surgeries were offered more to men than to women, which is partly because, you know, there were more men imprisoned and partly due to the fact of kind of you know, everyday sexism, well, it's more important to fix up the men than the women. But from the women that did receive this, uh, breast implants were pretty common. Uh, there was a prison in Utah where um, I think almost all the women got breast implants every year. And there was a little bit of a scandal because many of them felt they weren't really educated enough about what that meant. And some of them kind of reported, you know, oozing and other kind of wound problems, which eventually led to the program shutdown. One of my favourite guests decades ago was uh, Jessica Mitford, very active in prison reform, and she went undercover to investigate conditions inside women's prisons for her book, Kind and Usual Punishment. Uh, yeah, and I'm, it's so exciting you've met her. She's kind of a hero of mine. And so Jessica, uh, what she did, and this I think was in Washington, D.C., and they were kind of, the prisons were sort of doing an outreach to try and make people, you know, authorities and journalists understand what was going on. But whereas today, you know, maybe you would go on a sanctioned visit and it would all be very proper, uh, back in the 70s, um, she was handcuffed. She was put in the back of a police van. She was strip searched, you know, the whole like, you know, cough and squat kind of thing. And then she was locked into a cell with another prisoner. Um, there were no kind of guards watching to check she was okay. It wasn't sanitized. And she really got to see firsthand quite how deplorable the conditions were, you know, how small the cells were, how there was, you know, very little psychiatry offered, how the options and education were just extremely limited. And her experience was um, very eye-opening at the time. So much to talk about, so little time. Why did plastic surgery for prisoners eventually end? Uh, I think with everything, it's a combination of reasons, but kind of the largest ones would be kind of a political shift and the public outrage. And so the public outrage would be, and these programs were never hidden per se, 
They just weren't particularly advertised. And so, you know, every couple of years, a journalist would come along and he would do a expose. And in 1989 in Houston, a journalist called Stephen Long, he kind of got a tip off that these plastic surgeries were happening at the prison. And he kind of, he tried to get all the information and he was given the runaround and, you know, journalists, this makes them more stubborn. And the report that he came out with, um, he, I think he found something like $12,000 was spent on this one prisoner to give him a facelift and an eye lift. And this was a guy with a 20-year record as a sex trafficker. Um, there was a, um, a woman who she'd committed murder and had many other offenses. She was given an eye lift. Like it was just a list after list of people who got surgery and the offenses they committed. And there was this immediate like backlash, like the governor got in touch. Um, people wrote a bunch of letters. You know, people were on talk shows saying that I can't believe my public money is going to fund these, you know, vanity surgeries. And also very upset because this wasn't something they could get for free. You know, these were expensive, desirable operations and almost being awarded to people they considered had, you know, worked against society. Sarah, I'll have to let you go because Netflix will be phoning at any minute. This, <laughs> this has to be a Netflix series. I've been talking to the wonderful Zara Stone, author of Killer Looks, The Forgotten History of Plastic Surgery in Prisons, published by Prometheus. Thanks very much, Zara. Thank you so much. Coming up, the rise and rise of Pentecostalism across the globe with El Hardy. In 1980, Pentecostal Christians represented ooh, about 6% of the world's Christians. Now it's 25%, with, as I mentioned, about 600 million adherents, including, of course, our own Prime Minister Scott Morrison. It's expected that by 2050 there will be a billion Pentecostal Christians. That's one in ten of the world's population. Not that they necessarily call themselves Pentecostal. The megachurches all have their own brand, whether it's a Hillsong, Bethel Reading or the Enlightened Christian Gathering in Johannesburg. Australian-born journalist El Hardy has spent the last few years travelling the world to try and understand the appeal of the Pentecostal movement that's attracting so many new members, including not only pollies but also movie stars, the wealthy and the marginalised. And I'm talking about Nigeria to Guatemala to the Philippines, America and everywhere in between. Now, Ella's documented her journey in a book called Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christian... Christianity is taking over the world and it's published here by New South Books. Welcome to Late Night Live and I trust you've survived your experience embedded in the world of Pentecostalism. I did, yeah, and uh, they I think they tried to convert me many times. Uh, they, they didn't quite get a hold of me, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's been fun and, and really interesting. How do Pentecostals differentiate from other Christians, Elle? Sure. So it's a branch of evangelical Christianity. I, I call it born again plus. So so like any evangelical, they have to be born again, accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Uh, they'll do a full immersion uh, baptism. 
and then they are born again in the Holy Spirit. So they accept the Holy Spirit into their their person and they're given that the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit that's talked about in the Bible. So things like miracles, prophecy, healing, and most notably speaking in tongues, which is what Pentecostals are, are really well known for. I understand that uh, speaking in tongues comes from the Bible when uh, some days after Jesus' death, he gave his followers the gift of speaking in tongues so that they could go out and convert the heathen. Yeah, that, that's right. So, and, and that's been from its earliest days in, in the early uh, the turn of the 20th century uh, when, when people started getting really interested in this idea again, which had really laid dormant for, you know, the best part of two millennia. And uh, it was this idea that, yeah, they were going out to conquer foreign lands. It's, it's called the Great Commission in, in the Bible. And something to this day, Pentecostals are just really good at. They're converting 35,000 people a day. Um, I, I, wish, I wish I had the gift of speaking in tongues. It would make it very easy to talk to, uh, to foreign guests. But Pentecostals know themselves by various brand names, don't they? There are Hillsongers and in Catholic countries. They're known as the Catholic Charismatic Renewal Movement. Yeah, so in the 80s, Pope John Paul II saw, saw what was happening, that Pentecostals just started sweeping through Latin America and he called them ravenous wolves, you know, stealing, stealing the Catholic flock. Um, and so uh, Pentecostal is the, the broad umbrella term that we use, but, but uh, you know, several hundred million of these people would be called charismatic Catholics. So it's really an accommodation from the Catholic Church because people were, were going to Pentecostalism um, for health and wealth and, and all sorts of local factors. And this way, you know, you can you get all that stuff uh, with, with charismatic Catholicism, but you can keep Mary and the saints and things like that. But it, it's really Pentecostalism, um, you know, with a bit of a Catholic badge on it. And of course, there are colloquial terms like holy roller and Jesus jumper. Yeah, and Jesus Freak Movement uh, came out of uh, the what we call the second wave of Pentecostalism in 1960s California, where where one of the founders of the Righteous Brothers really um, got Pentecostalism going um, back to the masses. You know, he'd been up to the Summer of Love and and saw how you know it was fairly corrupt, and and they they made Pentecostalism um, you know look and feel like the culture of the time, and and that's what Pentecostalism is really great at all around the world. Let's go back to the dawn of Pentecostal Christianity. It started by Charles Parham. Charles Fox Parham, yeah. He's not actually really considered the founder, which is really interesting. He was the, the mentor to the founder, the man who's considered the founder, William J. Seymour, who was a son of, of freed slaves from Louisiana. And uh, in 1906, he took on the teachings of, of Charles Fox Parham, who was a renegade Methodist preacher, and he... Yeah, brought the Holy Spirit to his congregation and it hit the papers the same day as the news of the San Francisco earthquake in 1906. And that was a really huge thing at the time because, you know, true believers really thought it was the end of days. And these really sensational accounts of, you know, people rolling around under the floor and speaking in tongues and having all these things fall upon them um, hit the press at the same time. And that just really excited a lot of people. And they started coming from all over America and all over the world to see this real outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Enter stage right Amy Simple McPherson, who established the first megachurch. Yeah, she's a fascinating figure. She, she's really a proto-televangelist. Um, and she, she really kind of polished up what was going on and took it to the masses. She was 
had this incredible sense for a crowd. You know, they said she could just sense a waning audience and and get them back in, under her spell. And she started putting the you know the the holy rollers and and the the quivering uh, people who were under the spirit sort of inside tents and, and and polishing it up a bit so that all sorts of people would would come to her congregation. And and yeah, she's a really fascinating and flawed figure. She um, you know was selling burial plots next to hers. Uh, she uh, probably had an affair. She, she uh, said that she was kidnapped in Mexico for a time, uh, but there are also reports of her uh, seen driving up the coast of California with her lover. And, uh, yeah, she wound up dying of an overdose of barbiturates in uh, in the 40s, but that was not after, you know, going over to Europe and, and raising alarms very early on about um, fascism and communism, seeing speeches by Mussolini, meeting Gandhi. She's, she's an incredibly fascinating figure. And, of course, she was a televangelist before there was telly, pretty good on the wireless. Yeah, I think uh, there, there's a fair claim that she was the first woman in the world to have her own radio show or radio station. And, uh, yeah, she, she really helped bring out Pentecostalism across America. Um, and, and that's something that Pentecostals are just great at to this day. They they sense where new media is going and and they really jump on board. And, and Pentecostals are amazing at social media. They you know, you can get church on YouTube and wake up every morning and see a preacher posting something inspirational on Instagram, and that's certainly very much a part of its rise and continued growth. I remember when some of the uh, conventional uh, Protestant churches in Australia were merging into into the United. The Presbyterians were reluctant because they were so damned wealthy, and of course, everyone knows the infinite wealth of the Vatican but they all are sort of paling into inconsequence besides the wealth of the Pentecostals. Yeah, look, Pentecostals essentially started Prosperity Gospel and it's certainly very popular around the world. I mean, there is also really a side of Pentecostalism that's a part of its growth is that it's so local and austere and authentic. Uh, so, so, you know, they often are very small, um, local churches, you know, don't have much money. But then obviously, yeah, there's also that a lot of famous uh, preachers around the world who have private jets and um, and are probably nine figures wealthy. Uh, but but there is some, some real evidence that prosperity gospel actually works for people. People that join Pentecostal churches tend to turn their lives around. They have that born again moment. Um, they, they, they're sort of buying into a network and into a community. And I mean, where else in the world are you getting that now? You know, um, and they're getting all sorts of services as well. You know, especially in places like South Africa, tithing is essentially a tax and they're building parallel states because you're not getting anything from the state. At least, you know, you get the stuff that you believe in and, you know, maybe a little bit of medical care, a bit of childcare. And um, yeah, that, that's really uh, operating in failed states at the moment. We've talked about Amy Semple in Dispatches, but women continue to play a pretty big role in the Pentecostal brand. Yeah, for, from its earliest days, Pentecostalism uh, has, has, you know, had minorities and different races sitting side by side, women preaching. It's always been um, the, the faith of the, the working poor. Uh, and I'd say probably about two thirds of, of Pentecostals worldwide would be young women. Um, so they're certainly not Scott Morrison. You know, the median Pentecostal is, um, is yeah, a, a young woman um, who just wants to, you know, improve her lot in life in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or, or in Australia. You know, you go to a, a Hillsong church and almost everyone's under 25. They're, they're migrants and minorities and um, they just want to feel good about their faith and, and get on with their lives. Your, your book reminds me of the old adage, think global, act local, because the Pentecostal churches sort of moderate, modify the message to meet the needs of a local congregation. 
Absolutely, yeah. So, so in Brazil, uh, where Pentecostalism is at this moment take, overtaking Catholicism, it's really um, it, it's really local and authentic, and that's what's really driving people to to get on board. So, your traditional Catholic priest is is educated in Spain or Portugal. They're white, and you know they're just dropped into your favela. Whereas your Pentecostal preacher grew up in the streets with you. He's mixed race like you. He speaks like you. He understands your needs. The reason Pentecostalism really got going in Brazil was because the the guy who's now a billionaire who started it, a Jim Macedo, um, started opening church at 5 a.m. and midnight because he knew that people couldn't go to church in the middle of the day or traditional times because they're all working several jobs and, and they're so busy. And so that's what really spoke to people and, and Pentecostalism just speaks to people's everyday needs. Now, the Pentecostal churches along with, I guess, the rest of the, the, the Christian faith, has had a long history of leaders struggling with sexual misconduct, what you've mentioned, uh, Amy Semple McPherson, to the more recent uh, accusations against Frank Houston. What's the link, do you think? It's it's a difficult one to answer because it's certainly um, popping up at the moment. A very prominent Pentecostal preacher in the Philippines has just been done as well, and and there certainly are these scandals. and And in parts of Latin America, that has certainly drove people away from Catholicism. Uh, but I think it's the obviously the the trust issue, um, and, and just also that that to be a successful Pentecostal preacher, you don't need any training. They're quite deliberately, you know, not uh, not theologically trained, um, but they're incredibly charismatic, you know, in, in the biblical sense and in the uh, the sense that, that we understand, you know, these are people that just have that magnetism, like I was speaking about with Amy Semple McPherson. They're, they're always, you know, just have that Bill Clinton thing of making you feel like you're the only person in the room. And, and obviously, you know, some people with with those talents um, can, can probably use them for, for bad as well as good. And of of course, your book makes the point that there's no church hierarchy, overall church hierarchy, so uh, there's no oversight of the brands. Yeah, very deliberately so. Um, you know, anyone can, can be a preacher or a prophet or an apostle, whatever you want to call yourself. You just need a following. And uh, Pentecostals have always been very aware that, that you know, making making the church a bit McDonald's um, can drive away people. They, they really understand that they're operating in a religious marketplace and, you know, that the customer's always right. And, yeah, people want <laughs> spontaneous things, uh, charismatic uh, pastors, uh People want all the good stuff, and yeah, Pentecostals are just are just really great at that. So it's um, yeah, so it's certainly changing conception of church as we know it. Uh, my mind goes back to uh, the height of the televangelical boom, when again and again, the uh, you know the the star preacher would be caught having a you know with a prostitute in a motel, or sometimes with in a same-sex relationship, but all they had to do was go down their knees on the telly and say sorry and repent and they'd bounce back bigger than ever. Well, yeah, and, and again, the power of Pentecostalism really is in that born-again narrative and Pentecostals are just great storytellers. Um, so people really see the demarcation in their own lives when they join a church, you know, perhaps before you were struggling with the drink or your husband had left you or, or something like that and you sort of get things together and you convert and then you, you know, sort of go perhaps with a new mindset into your into your new life. And so um, perhaps Pentecostals are a bit more forgiving um, than others just because of the understanding of that and the belief in, in the born-again moment. Speaking in just one tongue, El Hardy, journalist and author of Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity 
is Taking Over the World, published by New South. Now, where does Hillsong fit into the Pentecostal panorama? It's funny because in Australia people are probably rightly wary of it. Uh, but, but globally, I'd say it's one of the theologically lightest touches that, that we've seen. Um, the famous pastor, Carl Lentz, who had a, a big fall from grace last year, he was sort of known as Justin Bieber's pastor. He was the, the Hillsong New York guy. Uh, he famously went on a you know, daytime chat show and refused to condemn abortion. Uh, which, which is, you know, pretty pretty huge for an American evangelical. And, yeah, I think a lot of people join Hillsong churches in big cities. You know, it's huge in Moscow, Sao Paulo, Cape Town, Los Angeles. And, yeah, often I think people, especially Americans and people in other cultures, really like joining an Australian church because perhaps you're not getting that some of that harder-edged um, theology that you might see in, um, in, in an American church or in a Nigerian church. I remember being in Moscow just, well, during the the Gorbachev era and uh, religion was making a big comeback after years of being effectively banned by the Communist Party. But I had no idea that the Pentecostal movement was big there. Yeah, so so it's really a, a faith of big cities. So it's places like Kiev and in, in Ukraine and, and Moscow um, where it's taking off. And there's always been a very keen um, Pentecostal and American interest in the in you know behind the Iron Curtain. They always really wanted to get in. Um, so so I don't think it has any real uh, real claim on orthodoxy. You know that they're, they're not really under threat, but it's certainly getting people on on board. Um, and Victor Orban's son is a Pentecostal preacher in Hungary and, and there's um, some Pentecostalism is, is, is really gaining a foothold there. Any sign of it in China? Yes. Um, China's the, the, the next big thing, certainly, um, but it's uh, most notably seen it's Pentecostals run the Underground Railroad for North Korean defectors. So a lot of North Korean uh, defectors and refugees to the south tend to convert along the way, um, sometimes because they have to. So that's where it most notably is. Um, there's there's some small house churches and things like that. There's, you know, I've spoken to people that said that they've been believe that they've been secretly converting North Korean people within the, the Communist Party, um, you know, when they've been in China. But I don't think that's particularly widespread. But um, certainly a lot of Pentecostals will be looking very closely at China and, you know, particularly in South Korea where Pentecostalism is, is really big, they, they would certainly be very happy to, uh, to convert. Now, Scott Morrison would feel the gravitational tug of both Hillsong and the Liberal Party. What, what's the biggest influence on him, do you think? Yeah, it makes me laugh because, yeah, everyone in Australia, I think there's a real conception that he's really bringing this quite foreign faith, you know, into Australian politics. But I, I just don't see him being especially informed by by his faith. Um, you know, my kind of litmus test is, has he done anything different to what John Howard might have done or what hypothetical Prime Minister Peter Dutton would do? And and I, I just don't see it. I see him as much more a, a product of the Liberal Party. And, you know, we've seen Pentecostal leaders in, in other countries. The, the late president of Tanzania um, was a Pentecostal and he said, you know, COVID wasn't real or if it was, it was a spiritual sickness and you had to pray it out. And he was willing to die for it. And he did. You know, he succumbed to COVID last year. So I certainly think we haven't seen Scott Morrison, you know, uh, going down that path at all. And it might inform his values. I just don't see it informing his politics. Well, let's also recall that Paul Keating was at least a tribal Catholic and uh, my friend Kevin Rudd, an intense Christian believer. In fact, to such an extent that it made his rise to the leadership quite difficult. 
Yeah, very much so. And I, I think that there's a real um, uh, a, a, a real claim now that, that Pentecostal Christianity is is mainstream global Christianity now. You know, it's really taken over. Someone like Kevin Rudd is, you know, uh, is, is a throwback, you know, your old school kind of um, C of E or Uniting Church of Methodist. That, that stuff's just dying out. You know, it's Pentecostals. They're, they're, they're really sweeping in. And, and it, it, you know, we say it's about a quarter to a third of global Christians are Pentecostal, but, you know, Catholic churches are playing Hillsong music to stop their, their, their congregation leaving. And so I think just the influence <laughs> on other denominations is, is really profound. Take us to uh, Bethel Reading in Northern California, please, Hill. Yes, so Bethel Reading is, uh, I call it a company town. Um, so uh, the, the town of, of Reading, Bethel, is, is a huge megachurch there. It's very much like Hillsong, very famous for its music, um, but, but much more American and, and a bit hardcore. And they think something like at least 11% of the town actively go there. Reading, uh, Bethelites run the Board of Commerce. They recently had the mayor. Um, they're just sort of in every facet of society. And quite famously uh, within the town have been um, recruiting a lot of emergency ward doctors um, from Pentecostal conferences. Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry is, uh, is a really big uh, campus out, out there. Um, and, yeah, they have all sorts of young people there wanting to, to learn the gifts and they go around town trying to heal people. And so they're in the, the parking lots of hospitals. They're in the waiting rooms. I spoke to some nurses off the record who said, you know, that they just kind of charge into the emergency ward and want to lay hands on people. And, you know, I spoke to a woman in the town whose mother was in a wheelchair and these young people came up and wanted to pray for her and she said, no, thank you. And they jammed their feet under the wheelchair and laid hands on her and tried to, to heal her of her disability, which is obviously pretty traumatic, but it's something that's going on a lot up there. Well, I feel like immigrating to uh, to Reading so I could join the Bethel School of Supernatural, Supernatural Ministry. Tell me about young people taking part in grave soaking. Yeah, there's actually an Australian uh, alumni of, of Bethel who's been um, accused of that, should we say, but uh, no one will really publicly admit to it, I suppose, because it's a bit freaky, but there's certainly a bit going on, led by the, the wife of, of the pastor, Bill Johnson, up there. Um, and yeah, it's a very old-fashioned practice, but you go and lie on someone's grave, you know, particularly a, a well-known Pentecostal who, who might be dead, and you soak up their anointing. Um, you know, it's, these are true believers. They, they do believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and in these kind of things. And they will, yeah, you know, lay hands on gravestones and, and yeah, roll around. Um, so, yeah, spend, spend a lot of hours in the graveyard at, uh, at Reading. I didn't see anyone, but, um, but it certainly goes on. So from uh, total immersion baptism to, to grave soaking, it was out of churches like Bethel Reading that the Christian project called the Seven Mountain Mandate was developed. Can you explain it? Yeah, so, so one of the uh, so, so the pastor at Bethel, Bill Johnson, is one of the co-authors. So it's a, it's a doctrine that's come up in the last uh, ten years in the US, and it basically said that the you know the world's been conquered by demons, and we've got to get rid of them so that Jesus can come back. So the seven mountains are what they say the seven pillars of of society. So it's media, government, business, those sorts of things. Most notably, education. Um, and they say, yeah, the believer has to conquer them in any way possible. So it's very much the theological wing of, of Trumpism. Um, you know, we, we saw people storm the Capitol on, on January 6th, uh, in, directly inspired by this. And, and it's certainly um, giving people a lot of impetus to, you know, take over school boards and, and things like that that's going on at the moment. So it's, uh, it's a 
modern form of Christian dominionism and, and it's really taking off in America where I think the evangelical right, the radical right, know that they've lost the, the democratic battle and the demographic battle. Now, 7M, as it's known, was, uh, as you say, involved <coughs> in the storming of the Capitol but denounced the riots. Yes, uh, for... I mean, you know, America's, a, <laughs> I think, for legal reasons as much as anything, um, and they did put some distance on themselves, but, but Pentecostals are very media savvy and, you know, they're, they're very aware that they don't necessarily want to um, tacitly endorse this stuff, but, but maybe you talk about it a bit off the record. But, I mean, there are some pastors like Greg Locke who really got people worked up outside the riot. Um, he's, he's in Tennessee. He just uh, tried to burn Harry Potter books this week and there's a viral clip yesterday of him um, denouncing witches in his congregation. Um, so there's definitely a lot of incentives for these very uh, sort of Facebook-based preachers um, to, to really go to the extremes and, you know, they, they see the clicks, they see that people like this stuff. Elders uh, 7M have a role in, at Hillsong? Not that I'm aware of. And again, I, I think Hillsong's been very, very wary of, of, of getting politically involved in Australia or, or anywhere. Um, I haven't seen it preached from there. People within the congregations might be interested in it because they might see this stuff online. Um, but, but yeah, in Australia, there just isn't the incentive or the, the culture, I think, that's really going to embrace something like that. Whereas in America, you know, you want to get a small mobile group of people really um, radicalise and mobilise uh, for, for your cause. Now, we were well aware that uh, the Prime Minister was immensely embarrassed by his uh, vacation in Hawaii, but he was also rather embarrassed by his attempts to get uh, Houston, Brian Houston, invited to that White House dinner. Yes, he, he really seemed to distance himself and I, and I think, again, that really speaks to... Australian culture, you know, people are very wary of Hillsong. Um, people are, you know, they're, they're constantly getting battered in tabloids and, and a current affair and things like that. So I just don't, uh, he's always seems to have been pretty keen to put some distance um, between himself and, and Houston, who he has called his mentor. He doesn't actually go to Hillsong himself, Scott Morrison. He goes to Horizon, which is a Hillsong-ish oh. church in the Shire. Um, but, but yeah, obviously they um, are privately friends. I think that's fairly clear. But, but I mean, yeah, you see the lengths that, that Morrison goes to distance himself um, from Houston, even though, yeah, he, he certainly probably helped get Houston an invite uh, to the White House. There was a time when the end times were as rapidly approaching as the winning post in the, in the, in the Melbourne Cup, but the, the accelerator pedal isn't being pushed so hard. Yeah, look, um, Pentecostals went from being pre-millennialists, um, so saying, you know, God's got to come back and then and then we'll, you know, build the kingdom, um, which is why earthquakes and things like that were quite terrifying and, and pushed a lot of people to the faith. Now they're, they're post-millennialists. And um, so they're really saying, yeah, we've got to build the, the kingdom for Jesus to come. Many will say, you know, we've already been through the tribulations, things like the Holocaust are, are seen as, as having done that. Um, so it's really just about, yeah, building God's kingdom now. Uh, being very optimistic and positive and developing what I would say is almost a weird obsession with the state of Israel, um, the, the the modern state of Israel. Um, Jews are seen as, as, as one American preacher said to me, every Jew is a miracle and there are miracles happening all over the state of Israel. And, you know, I was thinking 40 years ago you would have been an anti-Semite. Um, so it's this real philo-Semitism really believing that they have political and, and current um, 
cause with Israel, but also that, you know, effectively they see them as custodians of, of the kingdom. And, um, you know, when the time comes, they're, they're going to have to convert or, or, or they're out. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's very interesting, but, but they certainly are end times focused. What a fascinating time you've been having, El. Yeah, it's, um, it's been really interesting. Um, I, yeah, had the excuse to go to some pretty cool places and, and meet some interesting people and, you know, meet some, some living saints and some absolute crooks and charlatans, um, which is, you know, Pentecostalism's that big, it, it sort of runs the gamut. But it's, it's been super fascinating for sure. Well, please accept an atheist blessings for coming on the program. I've been talking to Elle Harding, author of Beyond Belief, how Pentecostal Christianity is taking over the world. And it's published by uh, New South. And that's your lot. On our next, a memorable conversation with three young climate change makers, Vanessa Nakate, Anjali Sharma, and Maya Rose Craig. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.